Welcome to World is Burning, the storytelling podcast for your climate anxiety. I'm Olivia. And I'm Elise. And we're back. We're back for real. No more game shows, at least for now. For now. That sounds so (laughs) ominous. No, it's nice to have a a little break, but it's also really nice to be back. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good to have our little little routine and like my little like to research things and be like, no, this story. This person's problematic. Wait, <laughs> I don't know. I know it's yeah. the The <laughs> problem when we take a break, it's good, but then also there are things like the Unabomber dies, and there's like such an interesting ecofascist oh, yeah. story there. Like, yeah, get can ready. We talk about this now. But yeah, get ready. Sorry, spoiler for Elise's story, but yeah, um, like there's so many things that happen that I'm like, oh, I want to talk about this, or you know, it would be interesting to do uh, an episode on Juneteenth and stuff, and which is true. Day yeah, this, like. But then I also kind of like that we're not super reactive yeah. to stuff. So we have yeah. a little bit of separation between now and like what we, yeah. when we talk yeah. about something. Which, to be fair, I have wanted to do the Unabomber story for so long. You have. It is, it is documented. But we've always been like, mm, like. I'm always like, is that too much of a downer? And I, I think it's so interesting. And I like to think, I feel like. The Unabomber is like, um, I don't know, like uh, <laughs> sometimes like I feel like it's easy to have ecofascist thoughts and then you realize you're, <laughs> but no, no. But, okay. I know that's, that's a bad thing to say, but you know what I mean? There's like, I just easily agree with that. There's like one thing that leads to another and you're like, this is actually like a bad train of thought. Right. Right. It's like a downward spiral or like this thing is like, like super ecofascism light or you hear someone say something and you're like that is ecofascism yeah and you hear stuff like that all the time like it's very like it's a very common dark doom spiral to go down right yeah, i think then i'm like don't be like the unabomber looking at the extremes <laughs> of that yeah no yeah. i think it's gonna be super interesting but yeah stuff like that where i'm like oh i want to talk about it now yeah um but yeah no it's good to be back and doing things and then also like in pride month there's so much to talk about yeah in terms of like queerness and climate change and nature and like changing the way that we think about things queering the way that we think about things Mm -hmm. um queer violence you know and how that can impeach climate change all Mm -hmm. the things and so for this episode we're kind of going into the um i'm gonna say the funga kingdom Mm -hmm. because we i learned that term through this research okay. and then also the animal kingdom for your story. <laughs> I don't know where I'm trying to go. The with animal this. kingdom, yes, of humans and con- conservationism. Yes. Yes, just generally humans. Yeah. So I don't know if it will like fully click in once once we go through what you're talking about. But like when you were talking about mushrooms and like gay mushrooms and mm. stuff, like it reminded me of the, the botanical sexism episode where people were like male and female trees and like everyone's only planting male trees and then they're like actually that's not how like tree genders work like tree genders are a lot more complicated and like Mm -hmm. not on a binary necessarily so i i I just think it's interesting when stuff like that comes up um but that story remind like is also one to go back and listen to if you want to hear about gay plants yeah, definitely. <laughs> and Hattie Carthen too, who's the tree lady of Bed-Stuy, who yeah, also is awesome. Yes. And yeah, also talks a lot about like 
social dynamics, not so much sexism, but like racism and environmental mm-hmm. racism and redlining and all that good stuff. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think about that too, especially when I'm walking around Brooklyn and I see all like the fruiting trees, because mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, it was like, are those male trees? Yeah, that or no, it's the female trees, because like oh. if you think about like any a lot Flowering. of fruit bearing trees um, produce fruit and people don't want fruit on sidewalks and stuff because it will bring pests and which like when you start talking about it you're like okay you're only planting male trees and there's pollen everywhere but then when you're like okay well if we just had like fruit trees on by sidewalks that's a slipping hazard that's dangerous that's like Mm -hmm. ableist you're gonna have rats there's gonna be disease like that's like there it's a little more complicated than just like they only like male trees (laughs) especially when they're, they're like most trees aren't necessarily male or female they have like both or whatever so yeah just yeah maybe there's some like opportunities to go back and like yeah deepen that too Mm -hmm. um but should I just get into yeah my story yeah I want to hear about mushrooms I'm talking about mushrooms I love mushrooms yeah I'm so excited yeah and I sent you an article before this that was like a list of 10 gay mushrooms which I don't know if we'll even get to that but it, I just thought it was a funny maybe we'll article just post all the pictures from that article on the yeah on our Instagram <laughs> if you want to yeah. see some gay mushrooms go to our yeah I already Instagram. have so much like visual ideas for this episode like I'm even excited. the smurf village all of the little mushrooms but we'll okay. get to that we'll okay. get to that yes kind of so my sources for this episode were an amazing academic research article called The Science Underground, Mycology as a Queer Discipline by Patricia Kaishian and Hasmik Julikian. And I know that I'm either mispronouncing their names and or will mispronounce some of the like biological vocabulary in here. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. apologize now. It's okay. Um, <laughs> the queer ecology topic on Atmos, um, the third season of trace material from the healthy materials lab which is all about mushrooms and mycelium um i worked on the second season as a research assistant full disclosure we've talked about it a bunch on the podcast Mm -hmm. but the third season is amazing and um yeah i was listening back to that Um, a blog post on earth.com a blog post on shakruna and yeah just for fun the list of 10 gay mushrooms on by autostraddle will be on our website Mm -hmm. So it's June, it's Pride Month, and as we know, like the U.S. especially and the world in general can be a beautiful place of love and acceptance, and it can also be just an absolute queerphobic hellscape. And so I've spent a lot of this month in particular reflecting on the ways that queerness and queer thinking have positively positively impacted us, even Mm -hmm. outside the realm of gender and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, I really like this line from Bell Hooks that one of my sources also cited, um, or a different source, Smallhold. Mm -hmm. The quote is, all of our lives we have experienced ourselves as queer, as not belonging, as the essence of queer. Queer not as being about who you're having sex with, that can be a dimension of it, but queer as being about the self that is at odds with everything around it and has to invent and create and find a place to speak and to live and to thrive. I love that quote. Yeah. I've embarrassingly read like no bell hooks. That's like needs to be on my the top of my list. It's terrible. Maybe Yeah, we could do a climate bell hooks episode. I feel like. Yeah, I love that. But like definitely I feel like I've read a lot of stuff that's like informed by 
felt hooked. And like, I've definitely heard that quote before. Even I'm not sure if that quote is from All About Love, but even just like in thinking about that entire book, mm-hmm. you know, just thinking about rela- relationships in less of a binary, like not romantic or platonic or fam- familial, but like they can be a mix of a lot of these things and like queering our yeah. ideas of what relationships are too. But that's mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, in the expanse. Um, yeah. But in nature, I feel like one prime example of a part of nature that has been misunderstood and continuously reclassified both in science and in the public imagination is the mushroom. Mm-hmm. So obviously I don't need to describe what a mushroom is. Hopefully we all know. But they are everywhere in pop culture and also in everyday life. They are pizza topping. They are housing fairies and Smurfs in animated movies. Um, you know, the more I thought about this, I know it sounds silly. Again, yeah. we all know what mushrooms are, but like there are so many uses and like ways that we think about mushrooms that are mm-hmm. in pop culture that are so interesting. We're often taught to fear wild mushrooms because mm-hmm. of the small amount of poisonous ones. Um, they're a symbol of death and decay. They can be psychedelic mm-hmm. or ceremonial or poisonous or gross mm-hmm. or beautiful. Yeah. And I feel like I don't know if you talk about this either, but like, I mean, with the fairy houses, especially like I do feel like there is like a fear of the unknown or something mm-hmm. tied to them with like fairy circles and like being transported to something like other worldly or other oh, I forgot about dimensionally. Fairy yeah, definitely. Yeah. And like connections to witchcraft. Mm hmm. Yes. So they're like everywhere in the imagination, both positive and negative. And just as they can be a lot of things in pop culture, scientists have also been interested by their place in biology. So original scientific categories that date back to the time of Aristotle, 300 BC, around then, were just plants and animals. And even up until the 1700s, um, when Carl Linnaeus started thinking about this, um, he established a biological nomenclature. Um, which creates a lot more of those categories. But the two major categories were the same, animals and plants. He also had like a non-life category for minerals, but for life, it was just animals and plants. Mm -hmm. And then others came in and made a category for unicellular organisms, protista. Um, These are all terms I hadn't seen in like 15 years. Yeah, I'm like, I feel like I'm having flashbacks. I'm like, that sounds like a word that like, tickles something in my brain I know I was uh, when I was looking at the nomenclature I was like oh god I had some sort of acronym for this but I wish I had fallen more into biology but you know it circles back now I guess Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know how to pronounce anything which is okay Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you know eventually the invention of the microscope helped to add more nuance but it was still just these categories and no one really knew where to put mushrooms so they kind of jump from category to category. Sometimes they would like be plants and then sometimes they would be moved in with the like more primitive organisms, even though they didn't really fit there either. Um, mm-hmm. But based on like our knowledge of the time and whoever the biologist was, they would move them kind of as they pleased and sometimes not even like mention it. But it was hard because mushrooms didn't move like animals, um, but they didn't quite seem like plants either. They were too complex mm-hmm. to be primitive but they also didn't really fit anywhere else and so it wasn't until 1969 actually the same same year as the stonewall rebellion Mm -hmm. um, that fungi was added as a category and in that year 
American plant ecologist Robert Harding Whitaker proposed a five-kingdom classification. Animalia, plantae, fungi, protista, and monera. I know I pronounced at least one of those wrong. I think you did it 100% right. Yeah. Say. Yeah. <laughs> some, some people say fungi and stuff too, but it's okay. We can say whatever we want. Um, I, like, I like to say fungi because then that makes the joke work better. They're or a like, fun guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. The mushroom at the party. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> He's a fun guy. Well, but just so you know, so fungi as a category also consists of yeasts and molds. And so it's just crazy to me that like even at that point in or you know, we've had like fungal infections and also like things like penicillin that were yeah. already invented before these had like a proper category in our kingdom like nomenclature. Mm-hmm. So the reason that they got their own category is because fungi digest food in a way that's more similar to animals than plants. Um, plants make food through photosynthesis, while animals are heterotrophs, which means that they find food outside of their body. Hmm. Mushrooms reproduce via spores, which are microscopic. And since mushrooms themselves don't like move except for growing, spores are what allow them to spread across land in the air. Um, and so they'll like move in the air until they find a place where they are able to like stop down and grow. Mm-hmm. Most of the mushroom is actually underneath and what's called the mycelium, which is like the roots of a tree is the best way to describe it. Um, and they can survive even if the external mushroom dies. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like that's really important to remember because it's like mycelium is like magic. There are these underground networks mm-hmm. um, and they can be microscopic or they can grow to span miles underneath land. Mm-hmm. Has um, anyone watched The Last of Us? Because that explains it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there you go. Um, <laughs> That's exactly. Like I've that. watched I've watched the first like four episodes, so I understand what you mean. <gasps> but maybe they go into you it afterwards. You need to read more. Or I know. Watch more. I'm trying to read. Um, yeah. You should watch the I, rest of it. It's really good. I mean, episode three was my favorite, but I mean, yeah, episode of- three is canon. <laughs> yeah, that's I watched so I could get to episode three. And it was so good that by like the time it was over, I was like, I don't really care about any of the rest of you. That was too beautiful. Yeah, I know. And yeah, I was watching that with Lan and he was like, are you crying? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but you yeah, know, OK, so, so something actually I'm glad you brought that up because I did not think about that show at all. Um, while okay. I was researching this but going back to that like fear of mushrooms not only that they're going to be poisonous but just like children are often taught to fear mushrooms mm. and so that's called mycophobia mm. like mycelium mycophobia and the academic article that I cited in a lot of other places will compare that to queer phobia basically this idea that like if something isn't binary good or bad mm. um, that it's something that maybe is meant to be feared or if it's something that can't be fully understood or is not fully understood yeah, by science, which, okay, I'm trying not to, like, get on my, um, what's it called, on my pedestal or whatever. Yeah. Soapbox? My soapbox. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm not going to step on a pedestal, <laughs> but I'll step on my soapbox to get to my pedestal, maybe. Yes. <laughs> but, like, so much of science comes from white men, mm-hmm. largely Christian men, and so, like, a lot of our ideas of or ways of trying to understand non-human species is through the lens of 
mm-hmm. Christianity, through men, white men. And so, like, that limits a lot of what we can understand. Yeah. And since mushrooms don't really fall into a lot of the normal categories, not just, like, by the way that they eat, but also the way that they grow and reproduce, the way that you can try to look for a mushroom in the same place. And there are certain species, subspecies of mushrooms that you can see, like, consistently year to year in the same place. But there are Mm -hmm. also so many that, you know, will flower in one place and then disappear the next day and never appear there again mm-hmm. or maybe they'll appear 10 miles away yeah 100 miles away um be- based on the way that the spores travel yeah um so it's much less predictable and harder to like study in the way mm-hmm. that traditional scientists might be used to mm-hmm. so when that article which was in catalyst when they're trying to explain this they said that because mushrooms are so much more so much less predictable it encourages us encourages us to rethink scientific endeavors not as observations of subjects but as interactions with them Hmm. thinking of that as like an observation is a static truth and then just an interaction with them doesn't necessarily expect that that's going to happen again and again and again yeah um Another other cool things about mycelium, I could go on for literally forever. Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about mycelium networks, and if you listen to the trace material uh, whole season, which you totally should, they talk a lot more about mycelium and mushrooms as uh, sustainable building materials for affordable mm-hmm. housing, which is very very cool. There's also mushroom leather, like so many things. Just learning from mycelium networks as concepts. But in a practical sense, they are an essential food source for many small living creatures in the soil. And they also help plants above ground to obtain nutrients and grow. Their major role also is as decomposers. So I think that's Mm -hmm. like plays into The Last of Us a little bit. So they can help continue the life cycle and the carbon cycle of living of other living things. Um, They're incredible for storing carbon and like continuing the life cycle in a healthy way and keeping the Mm -hmm. networks around them healthy because even if you don't see mushrooms in a forest which you most likely will but if you don't that doesn't mean that there's no mycelium there there could be like huge Mm -hmm. networks of mycelium underneath um that are just like working in the wings Mm -hmm. so in 1969 fungi was made a category in the kingdoms some people Mm -hmm. call them kingdoms which i think is very cool but in 2021, so literally so recently, the Species Survival Commission of the International Union for Conservation in Nature called for the recognition of fungi as one of three kingdoms of life and critical to protecting and restoring Earth. They asked that the phrase animals and plants be replaced with animals, fungi, and plants, and that flora and fauna be replaced by fauna, flora, and fungi. Mm. Um, so funga is like the brand new category okay Uh, which how do you how do you feel about that I just thought that was so interesting I mean I love like mushrooms and and fungi and stuff but I feel like I'm I don't even have enough information to be like I don't like that I'm like yeah 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 sure yeah that sounds about right yeah like that's cool it makes sense that it would just be a different thing Mm mm-hmm yeah, well, I just I thought that was a good example also of like adjusting our language yeah. to express our knowledge more and accurately. Why would like 
it's just like why would we be resistant to that if we just have more information and we're like like why can't like why do they do things need to fit into two things which is the whole point yeah okay so I just have a final little quote actually it's kind of a big quote but I I was telling you I was adding this and I was like I don't know where to stop because it's so good yeah I really recommend that people read that catalyst article because um it'll be the first thing in our sources Mm -hmm. and it is so interesting um I didn't even get to dig into a lot of it but like yeah it is it's fascinating just to think about queer theory and mycology um but so they they finish it by saying mycology is queer insofar as it is marginal subordinate contested ridiculed but more critically mycology is queer insofar as it is disruptive collective transformative and revolutionary fungi (laughs) show us cooperative alternative promiscuous entangled interdependent more than individuated and more than human modes of living worth studying, imitating, learning from, and which queerness in humans is often shared. Just as fungi are capable of reclaiming land, bodies, and nutrients, so too can humans reclaim our relationship with fungi as siblings. Cute. Yeah. So that's that's all I have on that. Okay. But I think it's an interesting concept to think about. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is so interesting that it's just like just now we're like, Maybe it's a different thing. Yeah. It is fun. Yeah, but it's kind of amazing too that we can we can make that distinction now and be like, hey, yeah. Just in the same way that when we had microscopes and, you know, understanding of basic biological structures and stuff, yeah. we could add so like, more to our knowledge. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of the time now people are like, I don't know, sometimes I have the thought that everything, every scientific advance happened between a hundred and 300 years ago and like anything yeah. else that we want to change now is like yeah people are very resistant to it, it and yeah. so this is just one where I'm like it's not so hard to to understand why that it makes sense yeah. to have that we continually progress yeah and to, to in a sense like give up the binary of flora and fauna so that yeah. we can have a deeper understanding of what actually has yeah. always existed yeah I honestly this is like kind of this is very unrelated but like also related like with science stuff like I always think about how with medicine looking back not that long ago all things considered um we'd be like leeches that's insane like you bled people (laughs) and now it's like I think about medicine today and I think about all of the like things that aren't aren't perfect or like even just like with cancer like chemotherapy and how we're essentially like poisoning ourselves Mm -hmm. and how like maybe in you know whatever like in the future people will be like you poisoned your like you had radiation like what mm-hmm. um may- maybe not maybe that will be a thing forever but like I just think of like you know advancements and how we're going to think about all the little silly things that we thought today and how yeah it'll be like that's so silly yeah I mean even things as small as like the uh, the smallpox scar I'm laughing because it's like the thing in outlander that yeah shows her <laughs> to be from the future but like yeah. not having a scar from a major vaccine is another like very small thing but yeah something that you don't even think about 100 percent. i i realize that there's gonna be some people that hear like a list of 10 gay mushrooms and they're like why do we have to sexualize everything but also i hope that like what you can take away from this a little bit is that 
queerness can be something beyond the scope of gender and sexuality. That is a huge component of it. Yes. But like when we just think about climate change and using networks that already exist and understanding the world better and like creating systems that are, you know, not rooted in all of the problems that we have now, like that is queering your thinking mm-hmm. um, in a different way. So, yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, should I get into my story? Yeah. Okay. That's so great. my sources are Oregon Wild, American Progress, Art Sphere, The Revelator, Kelly Fuller's website, EcoCart, and the San Diego Tribune. So I feel like I have a couple little little things I feel like I needed to like set the scene. Um, which I did want to specifically say that I feel like you always hear that climate change is a threat multiplier. And how mm-hmm. if you are, if you have any vulnerability or whatever, um, or, you know, if you're not, if you have anything that would impact your income or acceptance by the like white, cis, straight, a lot of times male powers that be, like basically anything that sets you outside of that, like you're more likely to experience climate change or be like mm-hmm. on the front lines of climate change. Um, and being part of the LGBT community definitely is included in that. And because of this, higher numbers of queer couples are exposed to hazardous air pollutants compared to their straight counterparts, resulting in higher Mm. rates of chronic disease, like respiratory issues, cardiovascular disease, and cancer. And yeah, like, which I mean, makes total sense. I feel like I'm like a broken record when it's just like, okay, you're not a rich powerful straight white man you have some sort of risk like you're gonna have increased exposure to this Mm -hmm. and then uh on top of that one of the biggest risks for being harmed by any climate situation whether that be allergies or heat or cold or pollution or wildfire smoke um is being homeless um and not having shelter and shelter as healthcare or whatever. Mm. And LGBT people are 2.2 times more likely to be homeless. So um, just thinking about like how does climate change specifically affect the LGBT community that like it, I don't know. It's just something to think about um, and why everyone should work together. Um, yeah, but it's also like, I don't know, just to drill that into like how the mycophobia and homophobia and how uh-huh. like if you are a queer person, uh, not, not all homeless queer youth come from families that don't accept them. That's not like mm-hmm. the only thing, but that can be a major factor. And so it's sort of cutting you off from your normal network that you would be able to return to in times of harm. Exactly. And so that's a way that like homophobia is very materially harming people. Yes. Um, even yeah. past just like the social implications and being socially accepted. A hundred percent. So like having even even not having as big of a support network or maybe, yeah. you know, your one part of your family doesn't accept you or whatever. Um, but like being poor, black people, queer people, disabled people, women a lot of times have more exposure to things. Kids mm-hmm. are a lot more affected. So like any any and like that list goes on like tons of things um that I I could sit here all day and list them but um anything like that is not good if you're trying to avoid 
climate things. So I don't know. Mm. Again, it's just like we're all all that to say. That's a long winded way of saying. A lot like any disenfranchised group is essentially in a place for all the same reason. And like not that we're trying to solve one problem, but like sometimes we're just trying to solve one problem Mm -hmm. and it's everything. (laughs) But everything's connected and teamwork makes the dream work. Um, <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> Facts, guys. Um, anyway, so I just wanted to set, set the scene with that. Maybe that's a little bleak, but also just like reality check of like why we need to support people, you know, why community is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wanted to, I like, there's so many people I could have talked about, but again, like, I know we really like to talk about like people who've been around for a while but I wanted to give a shout out to a couple queer environmentalists one of them is Patagonia the best you know Patagonia of course so they're a drag queen and they go out and they like dress up and drag and have a whole thing like their their photos are amazing and Patagonia when Wiley his activism is it combines queer activism and environmentalism in a really cool way and also like has so much joy um and it I feel like brings all the joy of like pride and like Mm -hmm. I don't know joy and resistance and whatever so they're really fun if you feel like you're going down a like environmental (laughs) doom spiral yeah um very you know beautiful happy uh, activists but also very resistant yeah like even yeah they've done a lot of um activism related to like the drag bands in tennessee mm-hmm. and elsewhere mm-hmm. and i think there was a campaign that they did with at the beginning of pride month this year was it with um north base or some company patagonia maybe it Something. was patagonia maybe. i don't know i don't know um <laughs> but that got a lot of backlash and so they're not immune to that and like yeah they do talk about it a lot and the violence yeah. against queer people but from with the most absolute fire photos which is just kind yes. of an amazing combination yes. um, yeah so like and it is very serious but it, it does like wrap joy and like beauty and yeah and like things that like you know you're talking about environmentalism I feel like people are like you have to be science and buttoned down and it's like no you can wear heels in on a mountain and like that's fine yeah and be like observing and contributing and and that's activism too yeah being awesome and that is activism so I wanted to give them a shout out um and then I also wanted I didn't want to do a whole story on her because we've already talked about her but um Rachel Carson Mm -hmm. is is queer uh she had a like decade long relationship with a woman named Dorothy Freeman and Dorothy was married so it like wasn't really a thing that was gonna like they couldn't really necessarily be together in the public eye Mm. and also Carson knew that if she came out as gay that people would use that to discredit her because like chemical companies were already being like what does this lady know mm-hmm. um and so like she just like couldn't give the public and any reason to discredit her yeah. so like they burned a lot of their letters to each other but I think that like she's such a pivotal figure in the climate movement 
and like her stuff is still so relevant that I think it's cool to shout her out as like a queer icon yeah um, that's so crazy because I, I didn't know that and I didn't know that she was queer at all until I saw like mm-hmm. a list of queer activists yeah or mm-hmm. environmental icons and stuff and I was like oh because we did a whole episode on Silent Spring and like a book yeah. club and everything and I was like I didn't know that yeah um, yeah so, well because I, I read the book and like that was what I was focusing on yeah there's a lot to unpack <laughs> anyway. yeah but that's I feel like it's just important to know yeah like celebrate all the queer environmentalists but yeah, so I wanted I wanted to shout them out. And then I wanted to talk about a queer environmentalist that we haven't talked about, um, who is also a bit deeper in her career. I think she's in her 50s. Her name is Kelly Fuller. And she stood out to me um, because I, I read some of her writings, um, like her little essays, and I really liked them. So mm-hmm. I figured um, I would, you know, go through a bit of her history and her, you know, career and then get into some of the things that she said because I, I I think she's just like a really good role model for people I don't know in general but anyway she traveled the United States as a conservationist and she was a career conservationist so she was not mm. volunteering she wasn't you know like she was being applying to jobs and going around being a conservationist which I think is cool I feel like not everyone gets into environmentalism that way yeah but she said for a lot of her career she had a motto that was see the usa with your resume and because she just like traveled around and used it to like see america she worked with or she worked in more than two dozen states um and washington dc and she worked for groups like american bird conservancy gila watershed partnership voyagers national park association uh, and the Desert Protective Council. And she most recently was the energy and mining campaign director at Western Watersheds Project. And she now works at uh, Oregon Wild. And she has absolutely fallen in love with the Oregonian coastline. Um, Can I add a Oregon thing that I... Yes. Um, I can't remember. I don't think I said this, um, but... I was talking about how big mycelium networks are. Sorry, mm-hmm. this has nothing to do with Kelly Fuller, but there's no, a huge mycelium network called Humongous Fungus. Okay, yeah, in a forest in Oregon. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. Yeah, I never heard I'm, of I'm, that. I'm I'm a little bit of like I weirdly have done a lot of research into mushrooms. That's like oh, yeah. a weird nerd topic that I have. I love that. We, yeah, so, we should talk about it even more. Um, we should. But that, I can't believe that we haven't has, talked about it so far. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I can't either. Um, How big is it? It's like like the size of multiple uh, football fields. It's really big. And then there's one in Australia that I think beat it out. That's uh, 200,000 hectares. How do you say that word? Hectares? 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 I, I, I really don't know. I know uh, I've said it on this podcast before. Yeah, we, we have. I just say hectares. Yeah. But I don't know if that's correct. I will choose that that is correct. So hectares, 20,000 hectares that's in mm-hmm. Australia. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the Oregon one might be the biggest in the U.S. It's like huge. And also it could be even bigger than they even know. Mm-hmm. Again, sorry, I'm getting us off topic. But like no, because the so mycelium cool. networks are so far underneath, it's like it can be very difficult to know where they end and also where they began yeah. once they've grown. Yeah. And they can connect. I didn't even say yeah. that. Yeah. I didn't even keep track of that. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. And then there's things about how like all the fungal networks and stuff connect with trees and how they all communicate yeah. with each other. Ah, and like a forest can be like one big organism kind of. Mm-hmm. They all talk to each other and like when one tree dies, it will like jump its nutrients to everyone. Ugh. Okay. Yeah. I love it. I, I'm end- endlessly fascinated by that. I want to know more about trees I know. Um, and fungi. But anyway, Kelly now lives in Oregon. It's very near humongous fungus. I mean, near. I don't know how close she lives to humongous fungus, but uh-huh. just like in the state. I don't know. Right next door. <laughs> Actually, maybe she is really close if it's that big. Maybe it expands yeah. through all of Oregon. Maybe it would be like it, it's close to her. I don't know. Um, <laughs> she doesn't know how so close it's it is coming to her. For her. Um, but one of her most, I guess, popular, most famous actions uh, she took in 2006, and she led a 78-mile walk across California documenting a proposed route of a transmission line project showing all the wildlife and nature and biodiversity and also indigenous cultural sites that would be harmed by the construction of the um, thing. Hmm. And she ended up getting it moved, like not stopped, unfortunately. But did she do that by herself? I I kind of seemed in some ways that she did it by herself. But then I saw something that she led a walk mm. with people. Either way, she like went across it. And I think the the biggest part was like she did that and then like documented everything. So it was like the wildlife and like just a close look at all of that. And obviously almost 80 miles across like Californian desert. Um, so, yeah. So that's like kind of one thing that she's known for. She also uh, lived in South Dakota for a while. And she was one of the earliest activists working to fight the Keystone XL pipeline. Oh, wow. Um, so she was a really big part of that. And one of her more recent focuses, and again, she, she's worked so many places. Like, she's such a, an accomplished uh, conservationist. But um, one of her more recent focuses has been the Thacker Pass lithium mine in Nevada, which I apparently got the green light up, up alarmingly fast. Hmm. Um, some experts are saying that it should have taken, like, three to five years to, like, see the situation and make sure everything was, like, cool. Um, but the project was um, given the go ahead in less than a year. So like they clearly didn't look into everything they, that they needed to look into and like adequately examine the environmental impact of the project. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so she worked really hard with a bunch of other different organizations to try to stop that or, you know, at least get more information, get like more I don't know, more scientists look at it or, you know, you know what I mean? Just like yeah. not to be like, yeah, sure. Lithium mine. Let's go. Um, but they did break ground on that project in March of this year. So, I mean, bummer, but they did their best. And if you Google uh, the Thacker Pass lithium mine, she will be quoted in a lot of the articles. Hmm. So Fuller is also a very accomplished writer. And I read a couple of of her pieces and I thought it was really interesting so I thought I'd share some little bits and pieces that I thought were really cool yeah so she has one piece called finding your way as an environmentalist in rural rural America even if you're LGBT 
Uh, I think it's cool to not like count out rural areas just because I, I don't know. I feel like it's easy to be like eh, cities. Everyone's cool there, and yeah. not it. You know, whatever. No, yeah, definitely rural America, especially gets so forgotten, and uh, especially well, anyone that is different in rural yes, America. Absolutely. Um. So, I saw that and was like, "Ooh, interesting." Um, but she talks about how searching for conservationist work in rural areas uh, made it easier for her to find some really cool opportunities. Hmm. But it also, as a queer person, made it hard for her to find uh, safe, reliable housing and also community. Um, so kind of a trade-off and kind of a really scary trade-off. But throughout her career so far, she's had, um, she's been told many times that um much like Rachel Carson, that her effectiveness as a conservationist would be diminished if she were to come out. Hmm. Um, and, you know, that she could be fired or evicted because um, some of the places that she was in, like, didn't really have, like, protections for that. Um, but she, men- she mentions... Uh, that while rural places can be hostile to queer people, um, they also contain nature where she often feels the safest. She says, in the solitude of wild places, I can hold another woman's hand and look at her fondly in quiet and safety without the fear of being spit on or glared at. Sadly, I've had those hostile reactions even in coastal cities where you wouldn't expect them. By defending the wild, I am also protecting privacy and freedom for myself. Mm. which on one hand depressing but on the other hand very sweet and yeah. cute um so i i like that she said that um and and that nature can be a a place of refuge for you know people who don't fit into the cis you know mainstream whatever yeah society especially in a rural area which is so interesting because there's like, you know, the history of the national parks can be so yeah. racist in particular. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like making clubs where basically only certain people are allowed to access nature. Yeah. Um, that's another thing that's cool about Patagonia, too. I forget uh-huh. what their organization is called, but um, they do all these hiking trips for queer people. I do love that. And like yeah. safety in numbers and whatever. Yeah, I do love that. That's really cool. Yeah. Um. But she says, you know, while solitude might be easier to find in rural spaces, community can also be a lot harder. Um, But she kind of gives some pointers if you are interested in, you know, going out and being an environmentalist in a rural space. Um, She says that bringing a partner or family with you is a good place to start, but that even Quote, even in the reddest of places, there will be people who are silently pleased that an environmentalist has moved to town. The key is knowing where to look for them. I've discovered welcoming souls hidden in libraries, art councils, farmers markets, community gardens, town cleanup groups, public meetings, hiking clubs, local charities, and Episcopal churches. Sometimes I've even found other LGBT people. Hmm. So I, I thought that was cool and that she's been able to find community and helpful people and people who 
are glad she's there. Um, and she always looks for that, which I, I feel like that's like hopeful in itself. Um, that like no matter how sparsely populated and isolated a community might be, there's always, you know, most likely going to be people that are maybe they haven't been given the, you know, place to share their thoughts. But like if you're a safe person and they're a safe person. Um, but to finish out the article, she writes, whether you make one friend or many, it's important that you be there in these communities. There are relatively few conservationists living in rural and small town America. In this way, I find being an environmentalist much like being LGBT. False stereotypes thrive when people don't know us. Hmm. Once after I helped a rural community defeat an energy project it didn't want, an old time rancher joked, you're not an environmentalist. You're a lovely woman. The truth is I'm both, and he knew it. However, the word environmentalist is hard for people in small conservative places because it's been politically demonized. Hmm. Your being there can chip that away, but it won't happen unless you go. So I thought that was like a meeting of minds outside language because sometimes language can, as much as it can help, it can sometimes limit, hinder, muddy, muddy the waters Yeah, a little bit. Um, when yeah, like everyone that. agrees and everyone wants the same thing, everyone wants to live in a clean area, everyone wants their kids to be healthy, like, but we get caught up in words sometimes. So, mm-hmm. but her being there kind of opened this guy's eyes, even if he didn't like fully admit it, like he was like obviously joking. Yeah, I love that. And I also think it's so interesting how she has these like, you know, this identity is queer, but then also this identity as a environmentalist and the ways mm-hmm. that she sees how people view both of those. It's that like that's so interesting to me because it is very true, yeah. especially for environmentalists or conservationists who either work in that field or like have a dramatically different lifestyle than someone who might not yeah, consider themselves an environmentalist. And like, of course, that's true also of queer people um but if you yeah. understand each other better and why you want to do things differently then it makes a lot more sense yeah so it, I mean it takes patience and whatever and like good for her because like I mean that not a lot of people have the patience to do that and maybe be told that you're wrong or like I don't like you but then like okay that's a lot of patience yeah. to give people um but like ultimately everyone's better for it and then, so, and all of these articles will be linked on our website, but um, there was one other article talking about, like, environmental justice that I thought was really cool, mm. um, and it definitely had to do more with racism in spaces, but I think, like, the way, I think she kind of combines it, and, like, again, as maybe, like, a queer person in a rural space that, like, people aren't necessarily on the same, like, they're like, we need someone to clean this river up, but we don't agree um you know like she kind of has a unique position to come in and like gently diversify and like make a thing Mm. kind of like open to more people and more welcoming to people but she had a couple tips on how to make environmental spaces more inclusive and I think that could be for queer people it could be for you know 
people of different races. It could be of people of different genders. It could be people of different educational backgrounds. It could be like literally anything, but I thought it was helpful. So especially this one, um, she said, use your money to create change, which obviously, but she said, there is an old rule of thumb that when people donate money to a cause, they can usually afford to give twice as much as they actually do. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> if you're currently giving money to an, to environmental groups, please keep doing that. But, it, but in addition, please consider giving that much again to groups that are on the front lines of environmental justice. Although many large environmental organizations saw a big bump up in donations after the November 2016 election, uh, which this that article was a couple of years old, but I think it's still incredibly, incredibly relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of small, scrappy groups who fight environmental racism didn't. These are groups who hire the most people of color and they could really use your assistance um, and also volunteer if you don't have the money. So I thought I thought that was cool. Um, I think I think that's a cool way of like, OK, if everyone's talking about donating to X, Y or Z group in response to something that happens like they're probably getting enough money so if you are donating to them like look for other groups as well and just like think about taking an extra step another one is just like kind of the obvious like you know demand accountability from groups if you're not really seeing that much diversity if you are in in an environmental space uh, make sure you're looking outside the group to hire people or even I guess to look for if you're like a volunteer like look for people um outside of like your normal circle Mm. to invite or to ask to apply for a position she says and it like uh, many environmental job listings are posted only on specialized job boards or email lists that potential job applicants will not know about unless someone already working in the field clues them in so kind of doing the extra step public publicizing the job in other areas can get more diverse people to apply or just like let them Mm. know about it yeah um that's such a good point and (laughs) she she says just try harder (laughs) um a common excuse for all white or nearly all white environmental group staffs is that diverse candidates did not apply when this happens it reflects a group's social isolation Fixing it means working long before the hiring process begins to build relationships with people who are more representative of what America looks like. Um, I found community colleges, local United Way organizations, and VISTA and AmeriCorps groups helpful for finding new entry-level employees from outside personal networks of coworkers and board members. Organizations looking for more senior workers may need to build different relationships. Hmm. Also, Ask yourself, does this job really need a college degree? Because there might be lots of diverse, really, you know, qualified people who just haven't gone to college or don't have necessarily a traditional education. Mm. That you know, I think that's interesting. Um, and she also says, no, this change is vitally important and worth your time and money. She says, uh, from personal experience, I can tell you that being paid to be a professional conservationist is life changing. It means you can spend most of your time working on the environment or working on the environmental issues that mean so much to you instead of having to support yourself with a day job while, uh, you know, volunteering on the side. Mm-hmm. Those who get hired by the largest environmental groups have the opportunity to do this work for middle class income and benefits. 
reserving the experience primarily for whites is not only unjust, but robs the movement of talented people who would make it stronger. So, I mean, obviously, this isn't necessarily about diversifying your workplace and having more queer people. It could be, but like having people of color, just having people from different backgrounds and people who, you know, might not have all the same networks Mm -hmm. and whatever as as you or as your boss or whatever um so yeah I just I just thought like a lot of her things seemed very mindful and very open and inclusive and like okay this is one that I thought was cool that I I missed but um she found that oftentimes people wouldn't be super open to hearing what she had to say and she didn't want to risk her nice nice um you know, well-paid environmental job. Hmm. And so she would simply, like, build out the organization's relationships with more diverse groups. So, like, like I named some things. Like, if you're going to, like, look for groups to hire from or partner with or whatever, like, she would go and, like, just build those relationships herself. And then she would also seek funding that would require the organization she was working for to diversify. Hmm. so like I mean people are going to be like well if you get this big grant but we need to have x y and z like that's like harder to say no to than just be like we need to do this so I thought that was that was a cool tip too of just things you can do without like like obviously know the time to ruffle feathers and know the time when not to ruffle feathers um and sometimes you can just make it happen and not but I like that she seems to know when she should step forward individually as like a leader and when mm-hmm. she has that specific skill set to make something happen. And then also when you can be like, sure, I can make it more, you know, the candidate pool more diverse for this specific position. But I would rather change the structure with which we hire people, for example, yeah. um, for it to be more inclusive because that's going to be less pressure on me and also better in the long term because it's not just going to be this one candidate that gets a chance but and also like yeah yeah, focuses a little bit better a little bit less on like identity politics and stuff and just instead is like we want a more diverse group because it benefits us as well yeah easy easier to be like look at all these really amazing qualified diverse candidates that I've already got and be like we need to look (laughs) we need to have more diversity and I'm making a point of it and like obviously you should say that too but like sometimes it's just like you're like oh mm, these are my favorite candidates yeah it's like we went to three college career fairs why haven't we found the right <laughs> candidate yeah if you're just like I'm gonna make a case for this person um then you know that that can make a huge difference and mm-hmm. if everyone starts being a little more mindful of that like that could fully change so many different things so and and again like circling back to the beginning of what I said, like any group that is disenfranchised, obviously every every group has their unique needs and like setbacks and, you know, all different things. Challenges, but like there's yeah. so many things that are the same or similar. And like once you start breaking down the walls of one thing, hmm. you know, it helps helps other other things. So I don't know. It's I just it's important and yeah. cool. And I I know there's a lot of like 
backlash and a lot of like anti-trans bills and a lot of like really scary like censorship things and all that but like there's also so many people working to do the opposite Mm -hmm. so things are terrible but also good yeah that's even um just to sort of like go on on a different tangent um one other thing that we missed during our break was the fires that took over the northeast yeah north america canada and the u.s um and other places in the world but specifically it was really bad here in new york and dc um so we're getting a lot of media of of both of those and people are Mm -hmm. saying things like yeah the world's burning the world's on fire this is the apocalypse oh my god what are we doing and um it was sort of our job as climate activists to say like hey yes this is bad it's been bad but also like there are things that we can do to move forward past this it doesn't have to just be like this is so scary um Mm -hmm. and so I don't know just moving past like the the fear of something and then Mm -hmm. looking into okay how can I like use this to motivate me to change yeah yeah or change the systems around me too, not just change myself yeah it's also interesting too I feel like a lot of like mainstream media is now because because it's so visible it's like New York is orange um I feel like a lot of the things that we've been talking about for a long time or things that I've been listening to on other podcasts or like climate specific podcasts or mm. whatever are now people are like this idea about environmentalism we're talking about it on like the real news yeah. um it's just interesting to see that also just start I mean, it'll be interesting to see how all the conversations play out and how people will receive it. And like, I mean, it's pretty hard to deny something's happening when so many people are very immediately affected by it. Mm. So, But it is easy, I think, to misunderstand why it is happening. Even if you can't say like the sky isn't orange because obviously it is. You can say like, oh, well, controlled burns are a good thing. and then that's yeah. when I guide you back to our episode number. <laughs> I don't remember, but Insert. about incarcerated, incarcerated firefighters In- yeah. and um, mm-hmm. controlled burns, which this was not a controlled burn for the record. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel I feel hopeful for some reason, despite all of this and like all of the the negativity and increasing violence against queer people and all of it. There's also so much good in the world and so many people that are pushing back even more mm-hmm. fiercely than before because they think that also people that don't identify as queer are understanding more how much our destinies are interconnected. Um, yeah. 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 And and again it is like the kind of thing where as things get more severe like every single every single like identity that you have is like it's going to it's just I don't know. It the polarization of like or, or just even, I don't know, even wealth disparity, just like disparity in general, I guess. I don't know. It's just more and more obvious. And then it's like, we yeah. all, again, like we all need to work together. And I feel like I, I see peop- more people talking that way as well. Yeah. Which is is hopeful, I think. Even if, you know, it takes a long time to figure shit out and implement solutions and all that jazz. Yeah. 
Are we ready for the dump? Yeah, let's do the dump. I read this book on vacation. It was one of those books that I actually started when I bought it in March. And then I, as soon as I got like a chapter into it, I was like, this is too good. I have to save it for when I can like have time to read mm, the whole thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Which was All This Could Be Different by Sarah Thinkham Matthews. It's a debut okay. novel, which is unreal um, because it is like so richly written. But huh. the reason that I wanted to bring it up, like, or that it was the first thing that came to my mind um, going into the dump is not just because it was so good, although it was, but also because it's about a queer woman in Milwaukee. It's set in 2008 for the most part, like so right following the um, financial crisis, we're in a recession and she gets this like very sort of normal, boring job in Milwaukee um and it's one of those books that has like so many familiar elements um mm-hmm. but then also ties in queerness and queer relationships and um being from an immigrant family and being separated from your family and um you know processing your childhood trauma in your early 20s which is something that happens for a lot of people and uh-huh. it was one of those books that just like opened my mind up to the possibilities of like a coming of age novel i guess Okay. Um, so I would highly recommend it if you get a chance to read it. And also, I'm not sure exactly how, but um, Sarah Matthews, I think, was very involved in Sunrise New York City um, climate activism early on. And so okay. she thanks cli- uh, she thanks Sunrise in the group, which is very cool. Oh, awesome. Very cool. Sorry. She thanks Sunrise in the acknowledgments at the end. I don't know why I said the okay. group. Cool. I, I, I know what you meant. <laughs> um. Okay, I I will say I have started when people give me book recommendations. I've just started, like, and obviously there's a limit, but I have just started requesting them directly on Libby. So I requested that. Yeah, put a put a hold on. Did you literally um, do it while I was talking? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I literally did. I will say I had the physical book and I loved like reading. I would be curious to see what the audio book would be like because there are a lot of like flowing sentences mm. um, that. I, when I read, I like to be able to, like, go back to the beginning. Not that it's, like, a okay. dense book at all. You know what I mean, though? Fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, like take it in a second time. Yeah. You'll probably Which, be I mean, sometimes I do a lot. Sometimes I do back 15 a lot. Yeah. Um, But I, I just read so much more, and then I get so much more done around the house, and then I, like, feel like an actual functional, functional human being. So true. If I'm like, oh, I need to read this book, and then I listen to it. But I did the same thing. Um... With, that I just did with you, uh, with uh, a friend who recommended a couple books by John Darnell, who is the guy from The Mountain Goats. Oh, yeah. Um, but he wrote a book called Devil House and then another book called Wolf in White Van that I thought were both really, they're both like pretty dark. And I don't know, I just thought they were very interesting and very like, one of them talked about true crime. I feel like I've, I've read a couple books. I'm because I had a couple friends that recommended a bunch of different things to me. Uh, but um, I don't know. It's all about like truth and like what I don't know. I I'm very interested by like what is truth and what is real. Hmm. Sometimes they're different, or like the way that the, the truth feels, or the way something you like the way someone experienced something versus like the facts. Hmm. sometimes differ and I think that that is a really or like how to convey someone to someone a story 
in a way that they will react to it the way that you want them to. Huh. Like manipulating, but yeah. Yeah. And then being like, well, that actually, that fact isn't true. This one is, but now that's how you should have felt. You know, I don't know. Like that kind of thing is just like interesting and like intentionally unreliable narrators. And I don't know. They're both Mm. them are very, very good, but I like, I enjoyed them a lot and they were fun to listen to. Um, it was like a read by the author situation. Oh, I love that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Those are my my fun book reads for the past little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I did read another um, novella with an unreliable narrator called The Driver's Seat by Muriel Spark. Um, okay. Because I've really been in my like novella era. And <laughs> I love that. I love it's like it's perfect for me, especially because I do like reading I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, but I love reading a physical book. Yeah. But I do have trouble with focus. And so, yes, um, a novella is so like sweet yeah. and nice and short that um, it's just like really nice to get into. And the driver's seat is just such a weird um, like thriller uh, book. It's I, I thought it was funny to read it on vacation because it's a book okay. about a woman who travels alone to kind of unnamed Southern country and dies. Um, yeah. You know that from the beginning. Okay. And she's such an unreliable narrator that you don't really understand what's happening. And like, you're kind of almost trying to look for clues in the way that she tells the story to like understand what's actually happening. Yeah. Um, which I just think is so interesting. But yeah, I love, I love having more time to read summertime. Like, yeah. Making time to mm-hmm. read also. Yeah. Um, what else have we been getting into? Oh my gosh, I've been listening to I listened to Not Too Late, um, which okay. was edited by Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Lutuna Tabua, um, which we've talked about a bunch. Mm-hmm. I haven't finished it yet because I had to give it back to the library and I'm waiting to get it again. Um okay. but I was listening to it a bunch when the fires were happening. Um, or at their strongest in New York. Mm. And it was really helpful because the first day of like the poor air quality, I still went to work in the office. And mm-hmm. when I was coming home, it didn't even occur to me, to be honest, to um, put a mask on to protect myself from the fires. And I was like, I felt okay with the number of people that were on my bus, but I didn't wear one in general. And when I got back mm-hmm. to my house, I was like, holy crap my I feel like I've smoked a cigarette or several cigarettes is not something I do and um then I was looking into it later and I was like of course I should have been wearing a mask it makes sense to protect your lungs um but it was helpful to be listening to that every essay is read by a different person um either the author or just like another speaker and they have distinctly different voices and so it was very helpful to be listening to what felt like a chorus of people talking about this thing kind mm-hmm. of as it was happening it felt so visceral to me um, yeah which is just very comforting in the sense of like having a community there yeah yeah 100% I love that yeah what else are we missing anything I feel like I yeah, don't know just happy to be back yeah no I I like wasn't necessarily on vacation but my mom just visited um hi mom <laughs> hi mom yeah, did some traveling last month, and I feel like I'm just kind of, like, settling into the summer. It just started getting really hot in Austin, and 
yeah, I'm getting used to my new place and like getting all my decorations up and everything, pictures oh, hung wow. and whatnot. So yeah, I feel like very like peacefully, hopefully, as soon as I say this, like everything's gonna <laughs> terribly. Um, but I feel like kind of just like settling into the summer and like I feel like I don't have any crazy plans for the rest of the summer. So I'm just like ready for some peaceful time, reading, crocheting, crickets, yeah. like tea. Love just, it. Exactly. So that's that's my plan. Um, yeah. Book book more book recommendations. Absolutely welcome. So mm. keep keep them coming. Recommendation city. Yeah. If you have recommendations for us or also if you have um story requests, we're always all ears for those. And we, you know, we have our list of things that we want to do, but we often don't decide until um very close to when we record and research. So always down for requests and should i do our socials yeah do our socials so we are on instagram and twitter at worlds burning with no g um we're also on tiktok at worlds burning with a g um you can find all our sources and everything you could ever want or desire on our <laughs> website worldsburning.com and you can give us a five-star review wherever you're listening and give us a follow um that helps us a ton engage with us answer the question if you're on spotify and it's like, what do you think about this story? Or if I'm like, what do you think about mushrooms? Sometimes I change it. Um, yeah. Answer that. It helps us. And it's fun to see the results, too. So, yes. yeah, we'll see you in the next episode. See you in the next episode.